I would work there from 8 o'clock and by 7.30, CK will come from his work. We'll continue working until 2 o'clock, sometimes 4 o'clock, head home, come back to the office at about 8, 9 o'clock, work again. The day just repeats like that. It's just grind, grind and grind and grind and grind. What kept you going? Was there ever a point where you thought, maybe this should be an easier way? Every day. (laughs) (laughs) Every day I ask myself that question. I think literally our, our joke among ourselves partners is this. Man, if we just keep this operation a little bit smaller... All of us will be driving a Porsche, man. Yeah. Yeah, let's just drive a Porsche. You know, why, why not next month, let's just drive a Porsche. So that's our <laughs> joke. When you say drive a Porsche, it means that let's just cut down the numbers, just work on few things. Then we would drive a Porsche. But no, like, that's not a plan. Hey, Simis. Welcome to episode 122, part one of the So This My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya. And today we have one of Malaysia's hottest personal finance YouTubers on the pod, Mr. Money, aka Peter Young. Now, these days, being a YouTuber is hip and trendy. Everyone has a YouTube channel. Everyone wants to be a YouTuber. But just because you want it, doesn't mean it's that easy to turn into a business, which Peter has. He started his career earning 2,500 ringgit. By the age of 30, he was earning 250,000 ringgit a year. Then he decided to give it all up. So his BMW and this all happened just as his wife had given birth to their first child. Now, obviously, Mr. Money has been through a lot. And since his quit, he's managed to turn this business into a seven-figure business with an entire team under him. We spoke and he shared so much that we have to split this into two parts. So part one essentially focuses on his personal journey, his childhood, the sacrifices, and how he started to build his journey how he started to build his business, as well as the kind of people that he encountered. So if you want a sneak peek behind what it takes to become a content creator and a very successful entrepreneur at that, then this is the episode for you. But wait, before I proceed, did you know that this episode was also recorded in person? The YouTube version of this interview also exists. So if you want to check it out, head over to sothismyway.com forward slash 122. You will find the YouTube link and don't forget to hit subscribe as well. Now, are you ready to hear Mr. Money's story? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. All right, so Mr. Manny, you're one of the very rare guests who come on my podcast where I actually have had quite a few conversations with you and I feel like <laughs> I kind of know you. But then I realized that I don't actually know what you were like as a child. You grew up, spent your whole life in KL. Who were you back then? Actually, I did not grow up in KL exactly. Oh no, I started off with the wrong fact. <laughs> <laughs> it's not but, good. But close enough, close enough. What happened was when I was a kid, Apparently, my parents actually moved down to Kajang. Okay. Yeah, so I actually lived my childhood there between one year all the way until nine years old. Honestly, I always think that, oh, this is just KL. (laughs) (laughs) From nine years old onwards, only we moved to PJ. Mm. And the interesting thing is, I found out later, was that they actually moved down to Kajang because they were running away from debtors. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And was this after your father had become bankrupt? Because he used to have money, right? He used to own several buildings as well. He used to be a developer mm. or a contractor, a B-grade contractor. So mm. basically, if you go to PJ, you will actually see like a chai and surrounding there, there's some houses. Some of those properties there, he was the main contractor. Yeah. So he was doing very well, but that was way before I was born. Yeah. yeah. And that time... I think it's in the 1960s, 70s. That was a time that he was doing very well. But by about late 70s to about 80s, probably things were not doing well anymore and he just went really down. Yeah. yeah. And that's when they start moving down to Kacheng. Were you aware that debtors were after your family? I mean, I think when you were eight, nine, you shared your mom used to buy leftover food to bring home. Mm. So... I think the good thing about being young when you are poor and you're young is you actually don't really understand what's happening, right? 
you do kind of know that like you may not be doing very well, but it kind of doesn't really mean anything. Mm-hmm. And the fact your mom goes to the market after the hours and getting leftover food to bring home for us. Yeah. For me, I didn't feel anything because I would be happy not eating. I just yeah. want to play, right? I was a kid. Yeah, but for my eldest sister, mm-hmm. that meant something to them. Mm-hmm. And this became like stories that they would talk about in the family. And so since young, you hear a lot of stories among the family that like things are not doing very well, family is very poor, we do not have enough money and mm. stuff like that. Didn't your dad used to say money isn't important? Yes. So because my dad went through a bankruptcy and he has gone through so much and you know how when you're doing well, a lot of people are your friends but yep. at the moment you go bankrupt, friends start moving away, keeping a distance from you and how it was like for him was that he learned that at the moment you have no money, people that you even helped before will not help you back. They wouldn't even care. It's not their problem. And so my dad always say this thing, ultimately money is not too important. What's more important in life is relationship. And so I kind of grew up with that saying. So I always thought that money is not too important. As long as you have enough, you can spend a bit, you can eat. Well, it's fine. Yeah, that's how I would think when I was younger. So speaking of relationships, what was it like within your family? Because you mentioned elder sister, but you had an elder brother you never met before. Yes, yeah, I've only seen his pictures. So, a brief history about the young family. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go in depth. <laughs> yeah, so my mom and dad had a huge age gap. Yeah, when my mom married my dad, he was very he was starting to go bankrupt. Yeah, things weren't doing very well in the company. Yeah. And after they got a kid, you know, and stuff like that. But my mom only wanted two child. So there was the elder brother and my eldest sister. And what happened was my eldest brother at the age of 12, he went swimming with his friends and my cousin in a mining pool. That time mining pool was still like the thing around. You would have seen Sunway Pyramid. Pyramid was actually a mining pool as well during that time. So they went to Sungai Wei then. They swam and what happened was that most of them drowned except one kid. And the story was, this kid, after he got out of the pool, he went home and he was so afraid that the parents would scold him, so he didn't say anything. He only waited until dinner time when everyone started calling and asked, where are my kids? They played together, where are my kids? Then he started crying. Then he said that, only I got out. So by night, when they all went to the pool, all of them were drowned. Yeah. So it was a devastating time for my mom, for my dad, and they kind of took a break off. And that made his business went even further down the drain. Mm. And that's one of the reasons they they moved down to Kajang at the time, because they wanted to leave this place to give themselves a break. And at the same time, the business wasn't doing well and things are winding up already. So they decided, you know, let's just leave this place and go somewhere else. But you still came into the picture. Yes, so what happened was, after that incident, they decided that they want to get another son, right? So they tried and they got my sister and they (laughs) still didn't get a son. So they say, let's try again. Yeah, and they got me. So I grew up with this story knowing that I had an elder brother who passed away. Mm. And my mom always say that we gave birth to you because we wanted a son, someone to carry on the young surname. (laughs) So that was... Something that I always grew up with. So since young, I knew very well one thing. Try not to die because (laughs) you are the only young left. (laughs) And they already had a son who passed away. So it's going to be devastating. And the second thing is that you are a replacement, right? You are here to replace another son. That must have affected how you felt about yourself as well. Oh, yeah. So... So since young, I grew up with very low self-esteem. So here's where one thing differs, right? A lot of people say like, Peter, you're so full of confidence, right? Man, you don't know the things I've been through, man. Like (laughs) when I was young, it's really bad in terms of confidence. I never had that confidence. I mean, the very simple fact is that whenever your friends talk about family, everything, number one, your family is already poorer than people. Number two, your only reason of existence that you know of is to be a replacement son. Yeah. I mean, my parents is fantastic. My mom treated me so well. But it's just these little words that 
accumulated to become something that mattered to me. And she didn't know that, right? She's wonderful mother. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, to put yeah. it out there. Wonderful mother, wonderful father, right? Yeah, didn't have access to the kind of parenting manuals and guides we have now. Yeah, yeah. And, and my dad was odd. I tell you, so what happened <laughs> is that, okay, so this side I didn't tell you earlier. Okay, share it now. <laughs> so actually my dad was a very inspiring figure, yeah. right? He was 68 when I passed away at 14. So he went through the World War II wow. period. Yeah, he worked for the Japanese at the age of four years old, tying up ropes on the boat. And his story is one sad story, right? He never go to school. He was working at four years old to support the family. And because his mother hated him, favoured the elder brother better. So the elder brother didn't work, but at four, he had to work and wow. stuff like that. Okay, but to cut the whole story short, he grew up being kind of like a gangster. <laughs> and he was well-known as a gangster, but he was also those MCA chairperson for a local place. And you know, you know, during the 60s, 50s, the gangster thing and the, the politic things are very much tied together. Mm -hmm. So he was during those times. He actually went to jail in Singapore for killing someone over self-defense. Oh, wow. Yes. So he is known to be a guy that you don't mess with in the <laughs> gangster world. And he has a gun. He has a handgun, okay? He has a handgun. <laughs> I grew up at like five years old washing a handgun, okay? Yeah, I know how to clean a gun. I know how to unload a gun. You were trusted with a handgun? Okay, this shouldn't go out, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's so it's so far off, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, so much in the past, right? Wow. So he, he would show me how to clean a handgun. <laughs> we had a shotgun. And for me, it was like toy, right? It's so fun. <laughs> you get to play with a handgun. Who gets to play with a handgun? As I grew up, I learned that actually, it means a lot to have a handgun. I mean... <laughs> Only Tan Sri's get handgun or Dato Sri's get handgun, okay? Yeah. And, like, and even, am I a secret <clears throat> Tan Sri son? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So so whenever he goes out, when he holds the gun, some people think that you are super rich, right? And I recall we go and eat in this Bakute shop last time <laughs> where what happened was this guy would buy us dinner because he would say that like your dad used to come to our Bakute shop and he would talk to the gangsters because they have gangs, right? Rivalry gangs. And he would talk, talk, he would just slam the gun on the table and everyone would be just so silent. <laughs> so he thought that was so heroic. So every time we go there and makan, he would pay for a meal, right? <laughs> but my point is that my dad had a very unique way of teaching his kids. So when I was young, I got bullied in school. Mm. I have this getting bullied face, right? Aww. Yeah, I always get bullied on somehow. So I got bullied in school. I went back, I told my dad and mom. And usually your parents would be like, hey, you know, let me do something about it and stuff like My dad scolded me. <sighs> My dad scolded me. Like, he shouted at me. He said, how can you allow anyone to bully you? If you don't step up and fight back, don't call me your father. <laughs> yeah, that's literally why I cried in a car. I still remember. How old yeah. were you? I was like nine years old. Oh no. <laughs> But, but it's a very loving dad. It's yeah, just... Yeah, yeah. Tough it's love. Tough love. And, yeah. and that was his way when he grew up, right? You have to protect yourself. So he felt that there's that need to teach me that. Yeah. But unfortunately, I wasn't very strong. So when oh, I heard no. that, I immediately felt yeah. that. Like, I don't think my dad loves me. <laughs> so you didn't figure out how to beat the bullies? Nah, nah, nah. Oh, no. I, I, I learned how to survive with bullies. Okay. But I, I did not win the hard approach and fight back. Yeah. But I learned to just play around, go with it, yeah. so that I become kind of like a friend, but not too much of a friend as well. Mm. Yeah, so you just get bullied slightly lesser. Mm. Yeah. So your dad sounds like this larger-than-life character, and he passed away when you were 14. So that yes. must have had a huge impact on you. Unfortunately, during that time, no. But mm. now, whenever I look back, especially now I have kids, mm. it there's much more feelings and emotions about it. But when I was during that time, no. I When he passed away, in fact, the first thought that came to my mind was, oh, well... I'm free. Maybe the family need to spend less money. Oh, <laughs> very practical. Yeah, because yeah. what happened was that my, my dad enjoyed playing mahjong and he smokes a lot. So my mom used to complain that like, hey, he's spending too much money on that. So somehow immediately my thoughts were, you know, like, oh, since it's like that, yeah. we save more money. That immediately came to my mind. And remember that incident I told you? So that made me feel that my dad probably didn't love me too much. 
So I also wasn't too affected by it. Yeah, so I was very much more closer to my mom. But for my sisters, it was devastating. And when I grew up older, when I was 18 years old, 19 years old, 20, I started to understand things better. So about 21, that was the first time that I cried for him. That when I looked at that whole incident back again, I, and I started crying so hard because for the first time, I felt that I lost him. Yeah, but during that time, when he passed, until I was older, it's just meh. Yeah, is there a reason why at 21 you felt that? So at at that age, actually, I started going to church. I became yeah. a Christian. So, you know, there's all these Christian camps. You and have all. to look into you. Yeah, so happened. you started doing all this whole searching yeah, kind of yeah. thing. And then they they talked about relationship with family. So it was a one-week camp that, Whoa, that's that, that, that really focuses on your mind, your perspective of things and where it came out from and... And that day, they just brought up the topic about parents. My goodness, I stopped for like two hours. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and now being a dad, I can understand what, what he went through. Yeah. yeah. When you cried for the first time, do you feel like there was a burden that lifted off you that you looked at life a little bit different? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It felt good. I think it kind of like there was a combination of forgiving what he had said before or what has happened and at the same time also this acknowledgement that I, I was loved yeah mm -hmm. and I missed that opportunity to hang out with him and this was when you were at Damansarajaya University so this was when I was in UPM already I was mm -hmm. studying in a university so there was this like camps and stuff like that and did you have an idea what you wanted to do with your life at that point I think I was one of those intense child back in university, I did... So, in terms of career choices, I think here's where, right? A lot of people like to have this idea that I should know what am I supposed to be doing with my life. Well, we have to choose something. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and we are so afraid that we choose something wrong, yeah. right? I mean, I've gone through that. I recall in my final year in university, I cried. You won't know how much I've cried. Yeah, so I cried a lot actually, right? So, I was talking to my juniors about like where things are going to be. I, I cried because... It was just a lot of pressure and there was this whole question about will I be able to do well, you know, and stuff like that, even if I choose the path and am I in the right place and stuff. But coming today, I've kind of realized that there's no such thing as one version of yourself that can do well. You just need to, you just need to sail through life, but you need to sail through in a more conscious manner. And at that point, I've always wanted, I still recall at that time, I've always wanted to go into Accenture as a consultant. I, I always thought that I want to do something strategic because it's cool, all right? You always watch movie, you hear people talk about it, like, wow, and it pays so good. Yes. Right, 4,000, 5,000 at least. I think, wow, very, very good. But unfortunately, I don't think I'm smart enough. So I sent in some application and things like that. I couldn't get in. Eventually, I got an offer into Genting. It was my first job interview. I was recruited on the spot. Then I got in and I became a HR in organization and development. But in just three to six months, I left the job. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you entered, you were talking about wanting to be a management consultant. And that's also because you had a mindset shift around money. At the time, you thought money is evil. And then you changed that thought, right? Yes. What happened there? Okay. So as I was mentioning when I was younger, yeah. I, I've gone through a childhood where I understand the lack of money is how. And I understood certain principles in money. Like, for example, at one point, remember I told you my dad from, was from a gangster background, right? Yeah. So at one point when the family was very, uh, there was one night they actually went out at about 11 something of this very intense conversation with a group of people somewhere a little bit further down from our house. And apparently it was some gangs who came over and they, they wanted my dad to help out in some illegal business. Lah. Oh, wow. And it involves prostitution. Mm. Yeah. And it was good money. Yeah. So my dad came in. He didn't tell us anything, but he told my mom. Yeah. And he said that, no, I can't do that even though he earns money because it's, mm. it's, it's just not right. Yeah. So ever since young as well, I got implanted with some good values, right? But nonetheless, I still feel that money is all evil. Yeah. And mainly one thing I realized why I feel money was evil later was I just had no money and I didn't know how to get it. So I felt it was evil. So it's more of a sour grape situation, right? Yeah. yeah. So as I grew up, I wanted to do NGO, NPO. I wanted to do more greater works 
for the humanity kind of thing that doesn't include money. But somehow I got into UPM and I got this course that is business management and human development. Basically, it's, it's a combination of social science and business. But the name of the course was human development management. Mm. So I thought it was psychology. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I'm not very smart. I can tell you I failed in my studies back then. I wouldn't have known what Yeah, because it says human development management, right? So I thought like, oh, sounds psychology-ish, right? And I was just telling my mom, I will never do a business course. But because of our family background, the only rule is you go into public U because there's no money to send you to any other universities. And they always said that to you, right? So you yeah, knew. since young. Since at a very young age, my mom always say, complete your studies, go to a public university. Preferably UPM because <laughs> it's nearer and easy or either, right? So just choose whatever that allows you to get in. So when I was in Form 5, when all my friends are busy deciding what to do in life, I was super relaxed, yo. I was just thinking about what to play next because <laughs> the path was already laid down for me. I already know where to go next. <laughs> Not in a very good way, right? Yeah. In a way, but I didn't have a worry, you know. Yeah. For me, it was just whatever university can throw me, just go. So I always come from a very very lack of resource mindset. You can see that. It's very scarcity kind of mindset, right? It's just whatever thrown to me, just survive, just do it, mm. right? So when I went there, so when I pick up this particular course, the first day, they told me that I need to pick my courses in the business faculty. I was like, huh? <laughs> business faculty? I thought I chose human development. Then they say, oh no, the management means business management. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh, now I get it. Okay, la, never mind. La. Beggars are no choosers. I already got in the course, so let's go on with it. Yeah. And surprisingly, when I started reading up about businesses, when I started studying about all these things, I, I realized that it is actually quite fun. It is not what I thought it was. Mm. I always thought the business is all about money. Yeah. I always thought the business is all about making money, being earned as much as you can. Then, But at the moment, I realized that no, it's, it's actually a skill set. And it's up to you to decide what you want to do with that money. So I start to look at money in a more, more unemotional manner. I start to dis disassociate money with my values to a certain extent. Mm. Like I just see money as money mm. and my values as my values that determines what I do with my money. Yeah, yeah and, and I did pretty well actually. In fact, I almost got a first class to graduate. Yeah. But the only reason I didn't got my first class was my mathematics subjects. Three of them, I got B minus and C. <laughs> the fact that you can still remember after all this time. Yes, because <laughs> if only I retook those subjects, I wouldn't have needed to pay my PTPDN. <laughs> wow, so I'm surprised you end up doing HR. Why wouldn't you go and take some kind of business development role? Actually, at that point, because I recall at the moment I left university, Yeah. I always thought that like, okay, I need to quickly get a job. I probably need to do one thing. I want to get married. The time I had a girlfriend. Mm. So I thought, okay, I want to get married. Yeah. Right? Next thing is, I got to take care of my family because my mom already said, at the moment you start working, start paying for household items. Right? So each of us contribute a certain portion of our salary for household. Mm. Right? So I knew that I needed an income immediately. So I started calculating how much do I really need. And I realized that living in KL, in order to get married and just have a very normal, simple life with family, you need probably about 15,000 mm. with your own house. And you were earning 2,500. Yeah, right? I was earning like, like, yeah. And so I started looking at different jobs. I applied for Honeywell, Crafts. I still remember Accenture. I tried to apply for Shell. Definitely no response. And <laughs> <laughs> All these brands. Yeah, yeah. And, and eventually when I... And what happened was like... Genting was the first to call me and I got in and the rest start calling me. I already took up a job offer. <laughs> so I, I can't even attend your interview anymore because yeah. it would look bad, right? Yeah. So I just stayed on that. And why did I hu did human resource was because I was just trying. Mm. And But what happened is that the role that they specifically put me in was organization development. Mm. And I knew that OD was more of a strategic position in HR. Mm. So I thought to myself that if I'm not going to be as good as other people from BCG and so on yeah. in terms of business strategy, well, why not pick something that you have a higher chance of being good at, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like the Malcolm Gladwell's theory of a big fish in a small pond, small fish in a big pond kind of thing, yeah. right? So I thought, hey, maybe, maybe if, I, if I just go into this, 
at least it gives me a specialization. I can work my way up and be better in one side rather than competing with all the brightest mind out there. Yeah. Yeah. But you mentioned 15,000 earlier. You actually had a plan to six at your income in six years. What was the plan? <laughs> so, so what happened is that when I was there, I the first thing that I did, I still remember, I knew that it's very important to have good relationship with bosses. So what I did is I actually interviewed a friend. Yeah. Yeah. I went there. I straight away called up a friend of mine who actually worked there as a senior and I asked her how's life there. So I just want to understand, will it be an environment that I'll enjoy? Will the role be some kind of thing that I enjoy? And she gave me a pretty good perspective of it. Now, now that I think back, she, she was also trying to tell me what's not so good about it, but I didn't really get it. Yeah, Maybe. so I'm not that smart, right? It wasn't aware of the <laughs> manager. <laughs> so she'll try to tell me, hint me, but I, I didn't quite get it. Yeah. yeah. So I went in and I I built a good relationship with all my colleagues. And the nature of me being from a business background helped me to tie up a lot of details with profit. I can understand bigger picture better. So I noticed that some of my friends who are psychology graduates or just accountant graduates, they were more like like siloed with the way they think about things. Mm. So naturally, I was considered the slightly bet, um, the better performer there. Mm. And one thing I did very often is I always talked to my senior colleagues to ask them, what is the income raise that can come in? What you should look for in the next five years? And you being, now that you go and ask it, if you're senior, it's very sensitive, right? But when you're fresh grad asking that, it's not considered sensitive. Yeah. So I also took the risk. I was like, you know what? The only time that I can really ask all these questions is as a junior right now, as a fresh grad, because no one will get angry at you. So better ask now. Mm. So I started asking everyone. Yeah. And to my surprise, I that that time was a surprise. Huh? That <laughs> it's impossible to get 15,000 after five years. <laughs> what were we looking at instead? You're probably gonna be looking at five to six thousand. Yeah, that would be the average. Yeah. yeah. But if yes, there are cases where you get to jump to 15, but it requires you to keep jumping company. Yes. And and I noticed that it is not just a skill set thing, yeah. but also a, a networking thing. You gotta be good at that. Mm. Yeah. And and as a fresh grad, the chances of you doing that is unless you have a very specialized skill or you work in a very, very big MNC that is known to be good at something. Mm. So put it this way, it's like if you go to Unilever and Unilever is known to be the marketing company for FMCG, then whether you're good or bad, you're from there. People can't find you. Yeah. You, you know you get what I mean? Yeah. Since I'm not in that position, I'll likely end up at the average. Yeah. So I mean, that company wasn't known as a great HR company. Yeah. It wasn't known as anything. It yeah. was just a Chinaman company. Yeah. So you're not likely going to get that kind of salary. So that actually got me really agitated, annoyed, and I started figuring out stuff. And at that point, I started reading a lot more. I started reading and reading and reading. And I realized that the only way that you can do well, probably, or earn a little bit more money that's fully in your control is you do business. Yeah. Unless, like I say, you are professional. Like, let's say you're a lawyer, you're a doctor or something. That, yeah, yeah, you have a, you have a more clearer pathway or, or your first job is already in consultancy you have a more clearer pathway to get there but if you're a generalist like me at the point you won't be able to get that it's going to be hard it's going to be really hard so then maybe doing business will be a better choice so I started asking myself this question can I be a businessman and when I was reading through a lot of biographies I, I, I always reflect and I ask myself yeah these guys are willing to start like, like Steve Jobs maybe borrowing 10k or 20k from his parents and then starting a, a computer in his garage, right? I'm thinking to myself, like, if I have 10k, will I actually dare to do that? I, I probably don't dare. I mean, number one, I don't even have the skill to build a computer, but I probably don't even dare because you come from a background where the first answer to everything is no money. Yeah. yeah. So the chances are you won't you won't be able to deal with the kind of mental stress. So at that point, I was approached by insurance agents, as usual. Then they started telling me how good the business model is. And I thought to myself, I, well, ever since I was younger, all the part-times that I've done, I did well in the selling part. As much as I hate myself being able to talk, because people always see people talk a lot as annoying. Mm. So I, I didn't like that part about myself, but... 
yeah, somehow that's the thing that I'm, 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 I've trained myself over the years to be good at. So why not just leverage on that strength? Yeah. I can't be the smartest if I go to Accenture. I can't be the best accountant or business consultant. So since that shows some promising thing, maybe I should try that. And I did a calculation of if I were to just follow the system, do A, B, C, D, E, how much money will I make? And true mm -hmm. enough, in six years, yeah, I'll be earning 15 to 20 over K. Yeah. Yeah, so that was a projection that I got. And I decided that, you know what? Let's just give it a go, man. Yeah, you may end up losing your friends, but <laughs> at least you make something in your life. Yeah, because yeah. I, I still recall that what the most important thing at that point was when I was in that company, I actually, I actually went to the hospital. I was admitted into hospital because I was working from 8 all the way until 11.30 like that. Yeah, so somehow I, I had a weak body maybe, so I just went to hospital. It was bad. Admitted for one week and my mom came and I recall at the time I looked at her I was th and, and I was just a little bit shocked, right? She, she was much older than I remember. And I told myself that if I'm going to continue this, I probably won't have the choice to decide when I want to look at her. Yeah, so... I was like, screw it. I think nothing is more important than that. Let us, let me just give this a try. Yeah, yeah and and so I, I put my ego aside. I mean, it's the most ego-consuming job. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to say it. It's the most humiliating job to be in, right? Yeah, and yeah, but I decided to do that and it worked out. Yeah. Why would you say humiliating? I think sales is one of the most humiliating job in the world. Mm. The reason being is because, I mean, just think about it. If you get a call from a friend yeah. out of blue, what's the first thing you think about? He wants to sell me insurance or MLM. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it is one of those jobs where you just avoid that guy, right? Yeah. Regardless, you can be the best friend with him and the fellow will just avoid you after that. And, and it's real. Like when I started doing insurance, there are friends that I'm very, very close with there are friends that I've helped before. There are friends who tell you stuff like, you know, we are good friends. One day I'll help you back, okay? And when they know you're an insurance agent, they walk off immediately, stay. They got so busy that they can never pick up your call. Yeah. And even, okay, I have to say, my approach was not the like, I always tell people up front that, hey, I would like to meet you. I want to talk about insurance. Mm. Are you okay? But if you're not okay, please tell me it's not okay mm. and we won't talk about it. Mm. Yeah. So I'm very upfront about that. Yeah. yeah. So, but even then, people still avoid you. And, and it's not their fault. It's not their fault. Mm. Yeah. So it's very humiliating. But again, when you do well, people will all be your friends again. Yeah. So you kind of learn that life is just like that. Hey, Simis. Interrupting this just to say, I've left law. And this is essentially my year of yes to meet, to explore to see what's really out there beyond the world of law. Well, of course, also during the Steamy, which comes out every single Sunday. Now, the thing is, I've started to also help other people to build their personal brand. I spent the past three years essentially digging deep to the lives of Olympians, Fang C-suite executives, four-star generals, and now YouTuber and viral TikTokers as well. And what I've learned is that LinkedIn is an amazing platform to allow me to tell this story, to allow other people to share their stories, what they're passionate about, what they're trying to do to change the people, to change the community, the world around them. So if you're interested in also learning how to build a LinkedIn personal brand, do reach out because that's what I'm helping people do right now. Just drop me an email at sothismawai at gmail.com and let's get started. And if you're not sure what that looks like, just head over to my profile, look me up, Lingya. And you see what I'm doing so far. Snippets of past guests and also what it takes to be a great storyteller. All right, now let's get back to this episode with Mr. Money TV. Yeah. How did you <laughs> figure out to do well? Because you end up earning, what, 250000 a year. You mm. drove a BMW. So clearly you were thriving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I Even a, though everyone was avoiding you. I had a small agency. Yeah. I wouldn't say everyone was avoiding me at a point, yeah. <laughs> but it, it does... The insurance business made me learn who are friends and who are acquaintances. Yeah. 
yeah, it made me learn that. And they are very good friends that stood by me. Mm. And like, for example, Frankie, he's still my friend. He never bought a single policy from me, but he never <laughs> avoided me. So he just sat through your whole pitch. He, he just tell me upfront he's not interested. <laughs> yeah, I said, I'm not interested in listening to your pitch. But if you want to have a coffee, let's grab a coffee. <laughs> so we just grab a coffee. Lah. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's honest. Yeah. It is non, non-humiliating because he never did that like, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he start walking off. Yeah, probably he said something at the back with some friends making some jokes sometimes, right? But they don't make me feel like an outcast. Yeah, so I have friends like that. And my, my method of doing well in insurance was very simple. Just be very sincere. Be much more knowledgeable than anyone else. So unlike other insurance agents, very often they do not know anything except insurance. I, I made an effort to learn a lot from stocks to everything else, right? Because I felt that it is about learning financial literacy. Only with financial literacy, you will be interested in buying an insurance, Right? So if you understand financial literacy, you don't even need me to sell it to you. You will look for me. So I always believe in that idea. So that's why I went into that that way of selling. And I was just very honest. Whenever I meet people, I tell them very upfront that, look, when I meet you, I want to talk about this. If you're not comfortable, please tell me you're not comfortable. You know, always stop me. And so most people who are okay that approach will end up meeting me. We still maintain a friendship. They either buy or don't buy. And it's just a numbers game. Yeah. Ultimately, you meet 20 people, there'll be one or two who buy. Yeah. So the question is, how do you get 20 people to meet you? Mm. That, that was the only thing. You just need to get 20 people to meet you and your job is done. So just 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20. So and you just repeat that. How do you get 20 people to meet you? I do a lot of referrals. Yes. Yeah. So the first thing is that when I meet a friend, I tell them the pitch and then I just tell them up front that, look, whether you buy or not, it doesn't matter, but do you think that this is something worth for someone else to know, mm. right? And if you don't think my approach is annoying, you think it's okay, could you give me a few referrals, right? So they will always give me two or three. So I have this whole book, right? Where it's almost 90% filled up. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if I still kept the book, but the other day I just still saw it. I still Your saw little it, black yeah. book. My little, uh, it was a white book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, it was that little book and... And that, that was where I got a lot of contacts. That's where I ended up making a lot of friends. Yeah. That's where it helped me to build my insurance business. Uh. Wow. Mm. What was the secret to conversing? I think that when it comes to convincing someone, a lot of people think that it's a lot about you talking. Actually, it's very little about you talking. It is more about you listening. People will only listen to you when they know that you care and you see them for who they are. Not not the see them for who they are, naked, they're kind of yes, like they're yes. kind of like like, like too I feel vulnerable. Seen, you care yes, about I feel me. seen, I feel care, right? Yeah. Then you just need to say the right words at the right time. Yeah. It, it's just that's why a lot of people have this perception. Selling is about I don't talking. Then they have this thing, oh, you're good in selling because you know how to talk, right? Yeah. It's not true. People who are good listeners are the good salespeople, are the influential people. Yeah. It is not people who know how to talk. And that is also one of the reasons I don't like myself talking too much, even though I talk a lot. <laughs> Since you were doing so well, did you think I want to start my own agency? Yes. So I started my own agency. Yeah. It was okay. I was one of the younger managers, I still remember. And, but... After about two years, I, I realized it wasn't really my thing. Okay. I think for one, being an agent, you need to really make sure that people are always motivated to mm. sell more. And that's why you see a lot of agents end up buying big cars and everything. Because when they desire more, they have more ones in life. <laughs> yeah, They're more motivated to sell more. But I... I tend to take a very weird approach where I like to tell people this, right? When, when you join the career, you, you want to design the kind of life that you want to live. And so you need to ask yourself a very serious question. Is your life all about chasing materialistic things or living a flexible life, mm. having financial freedom? Mm. If later is the choice, then you should spend less. Mm. Or you should ask yourself this question, what do I really want and only spend on those things that you want? Mm. Now, then 
after a year plus, I realized that this is a clash with a philosophy of, <laughs> of building an agency. Because yeah. people who end up working with me under me, they end up telling me this thing. Hey, Peter, you're such a good coach, you know. You actually help me a lot in figuring out what I want. And the rest of what I want is not money. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, great. But now I got a problem. Damn. <laughs> you made me realize money is not too important. Actually, it's more important that I live a life that I'm happy. Mm. Uh, and then, they become less productive in the insurance yeah, yeah, yeah. buff. Because <laughs> they're less motivated now, right? So then I'm like, oh no, I, I have a huge problem. <laughs> I have a huge problem. It seems like I'm just, it's probably a selection issue or either yeah, a nurturing yeah. issue and everything, right? And, and I figured that I think I have to change my style to be much more the typical kind, rah-rah, you need more, you need more. And I started asking myself this question, is that really, really what I want in life? Because remember I said that when I started off, I only wanted about 15,000. That's enough for me to live a good life, right? And in the past, actually, I, I never thought about making a lot of money. I always thought that I just want to live a happy life. That's all. And in fact, I wanted to work for government. The only reason I'm not with government is because when I graduated, they closed the application. So... <laughs> They say for one year, we are not going to hire in 2012 or something, like a change of government or something. So I was like, okay, then I got no choice. So let's do something else, right? When I did insurance, it was also because I just calculated, I realized that if I don't have that, it's very hard to survive. Mm. Yeah, and so I asked myself this, now that I have this money, I am earning this kind of income. Is this really, really, really what I want? So I started having this midlife, this quarter-life crisis, right? Yeah, and I started asking myself, what part do I really enjoy and what part do I not? Mm. And I realized that what motivates me and what makes me happy in that whole work is the ability to educate people, mm. to coach people, to, to talk to them about their situation, to listen to them, to, to see their eyes go, wow, actually I can look at things from this perspective. And those things excite me. Mm. I feel like those things fill me to live on another day. What I hated was the fact that I need to make sure that they buy or make sure that they give me another referral so that I can, I can go on another time, you know, and stuff like that, yeah. And so I thought to myself at that point, if I don't do that, what else can I do? What else can be on this path? And that's when I started toying with the idea of doing something else. And the first offer that came through was a friend asking me to start an advisory firm. So I thought as an advisory, at least you don't have to sell so hard. But I was wrong. Yeah. And definitely that was my first step into my own business in a sense. And I learned a lot. The business didn't pull through. I lost some money there. And at the end of it, my friend, he was my insurance manager who stepped out together with me. He told me that, hey, Peter, you're good at talking. No? You're good at this whole presenting thing. You're good at training why not you start putting up videos online? I see people start putting up videos on YouTube and sharing it on Facebook. Maybe you can use that to sell people something. Maybe you can use that to grow the insurance business and unit trust business and advisory business, right? Then, when he told me that, I was like, oh, it looks like that has what I want yeah. and what I don't want, I don't have to deal with it, right? But can this make money? So I started watching more YouTube stuff and I noticed that there's a bunch of influencers in the US like Graham Stephan, those kind of things, right? Like they actually can survive just doing that. And I, I don't mind doing that. But is it really going to happen in Malaysia? I wasn't too sure, but I think eventually it will because I started seeing that time people started engaging influencers for lifestyle stuff and so on. So maybe there's a niche for finance. But ultimately, what I really wanted at the point was I wanted to do a fintech company. Yeah, but I realized that I'm just bad at programming. I tried to learn it, but it's definitely not my forte and I don't have that kind of time to actually learn it because I just got my first child on the way at that point. You have to survive. I just lost a business and I lost like about 50 over 60,000. I just got married, which I spent about 60000 as well. So yeah. basically, 100 over 1000 out the window already. Yeah. So it, it, it was a difficult time, you see. Yeah. And 
I need speed. So I thought to myself, if I can't start fintech, but if I can do marketing really well, the worst that can happen is I have a media company that runs this whole thing as an influencer. Mm. That'll be the worst, mm. right? And worst some more is I just go back and selling insurance. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. But why was selling insurance a, a second option rather than the first, given your situation? I mean, me people would normally just go, let's just stick to something I know I'm good at. I just need to double down on. Okay, this is the thing, right? That time I was twenty I think I was about thirty years old. Mm. Probably about thirty years old. Eh? Is it thirty or thirty-two? Thirty-two. Two thousand nineteen I was. Now I'm thirty-six. So <laughs> thirty-two, thirty-two, thirty-four. Four, year, four years ago. Four years ago. Yeah, so yeah, thirty-two. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And I had a kid. So the consideration was very simple, right? When you are thirty, you're nearing your peak. Mm. Your your prime age is supposed to be at forty. Yeah. Right. Once you pass that prime age, forty-five, you you better be very good at one thing. Yeah. Right? You better be very very good at one thing. Yeah. So I still got time to play. Mm. I'm already pretty good in insurance, not the best, but good enough for me to make a good living. Yeah. I can always revert back anytime. Yeah. And I already have a client base of two hundred over clients to three hundred clients. Right. But at this point. I am sitting at a position of opportunity yeah. where Facebook started allowing video sharing. YouTube start to gain more attention. Mm -hmm. There's no influencer in the market talking about money. There's too many unique opportunities. But it wasn't guaranteed though. Yeah. It was blue ocean, but there was no That's guarantee. Right. So the idea was very simple. If I go back, I probably hit about 300 over to 400 over 1,000 if I do very well. Mm. But if I do this, my first two years I may suffer, but I can always hit way higher. And sky is the limit for me. Mm -hmm. I can end up building a business and I could do something that I really, really, really enjoy, mm. which is just teaching and educating people and don't need to sell, right? Yeah. So... That, that was the idea behind. Yeah. I don't need to depend on sales to survive. Right. So I thought, if let's say I end up earning half of this money, but I'm happy doing that, is it okay for me? The answer is yes. So let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. But you didn't just let go of the insurance company, surely. Okay. So you must have tried to cushion that kind of risk as well with. Our jobs. That's right. That's right. So the, the good thing about the insurance business was that it gave me a five to six years of passive income, mm. even though if I don't work on it, I had about three to four more years of passive income coming in from insurance. And and I would say that here's where I have to say that insurance became a very good launch pad for anyone who wants to start a business later, right? Because it gives you a buffer. I wasn't working, but I was still collecting close to five figure every month just from insurance. Wow. Even if I'm not working on it. Yes, you can see it dwindling, but it gives you a launch pad to work on. I don't have to worry about money too much. Yeah. I mean, I'm still worried. I was still in debt, right? But then it gives you time. So you start doing do, do odd jobs. And because at the point I was already quite, I have friends and connections. So there are people who actually came to me and said like, hey, why not you go and help me with my warehouse, this and that, run the business with me and stuff. So one of the things that I did was that I would be selling some insurance. I would be recording video in the mornings. Then halfway through, I'll go out and drive lorry. <laughs> yeah. So what happens is a friend wanted me to help out the warehouse. So he, he was giving a cut in the whole business. So I started driving lorries. I would drive a two-ton lorry down to Kajang, pick up stocks, stock up the warehouse, arrange things. And then I'll go back to meet someone for insurance. Then after that, I'll, I'll end up recording videos. The day just goes on like that. Wow. It was tough days. It was very, very difficult days because you've, you will go through this moment where like, you're just trying to grab everything like a drowning man. Yeah. You're just trying to grab everything that comes into your sight, right? Because yeah. you're so scared. And at the point, jo Joanna, my wife, wasn't even working, right? Yeah. So it was really, really hard. Until I remember one day I met a friend, right? And this friend of mine just came back from Taiwan and he looked at me when I had a conversation with him and then he personally pulled me aside, you know? He told me that he's leaving 
So I brought him to meet some friends and then he said, oh, I got to go. Then when he left, he called me. He said, hey, Peter, can you come and help me in my car? Then when I went over, then he just quickly pulled me aside and he told me, Peter, something is really, really wrong. You, you are not the Peter that I used to know. You're so lost right now. Actually, what do you want? So I started telling him like, what do I see in Mr. Money TV? What do I think it can become? But my fears about it. And that's the reason why I'm grabbing every single opportunity I can find to stay afloat while waiting for Mr. Money TV to turn out to be something. Yeah. And he just looked at me and he just gave me that face and said, bro, that's not the way it should be. If you really believe that that's the thing to be, you believe that the potential of growing it, then you should spend every hour doing that. Because even if you're spending time doing it and you don't see any money coming in and results, it will compound into something. Trust me, that is how it's going to be. It will compound. Maybe you may meet a guy and you tell him about Mr. Money TV. You may not see anything, but maybe three months down the road, he'll recall someone who can help you and things will just start happening, you know? But you got to spend every hour working on this particular project that you really believe the potential in. Because if not, you're lost. You're so lost. You're no more the Peter that I used to know. And I just eyeballed out in front of him, right? I start crying and I just went like, but it's so hard, you know, like I have a kid, my wife is not yet working, you know, oh, no, just so difficult. And, and I went home, I told my wife and I said, I think he's right. I, I think he is right. Yeah. So, well, let's go through this together. Let's be logical. Can you go out and work? <laughs> Since I, I think if I'm going to focus on it, it's going to be really difficult. Yeah. So why not you try looking for a job? Uh, it took a, less than a year old. Wow. Yeah. So, and, and, and Joanna was very good. She, it took a while for her to, to, to figure it out. But eventually she said, okay, you know what? I'm going to go back and work. Yeah. And my mom was super supportive as well where she helped us we here and there. Back. Eventually, yeah, we moved back. But in the earlier days, we were staying with her her family, yeah. and so she had a auntie who helped us. Yeah. So, and when she started working, the MCO happened, right? Yeah. So, but anyway, because of that, I, I started focusing on Mr. Money. I came back, I talked to CK, and I was like, CK, you know what? Screw it. I'm not going to be driving lorry anymore. I'm going to be sitting down here and I'm going to work on this as a full-time. Let's see where this goes. And the moment I sat down for the first meeting with him, telling him about where things should be and stuff like that, pitching my vision. At that time, he haven't really accepted to be a co-founder yet. <laughs> yeah, So I was pitching my vision to him, telling him that this is where we are going to be one day. And we got a message from, from a brand. And the brand said, we love to work with you. And we just looked at each other and we we're like, yeah, I think, I think this is where things are going to go. So, and I started working on it full time and I told him like, why not you join me in the business? Yeah. I've not I've nothing to offer you, mm. but you can be a co-founder mm. and I'll give you X amount of shares. Mm. And take this time, go and work, get some job, build up your own runway, then come back in and work. Yeah. Yeah. So he took on that offer and the rest is history. Yeah. What was that vision? So that idea is. I think Malaysians do not have good access to financial literacy. And sometimes even if we have access to financial literacy, we don't have access to quality financial literacy. Mm. Why do I say that? A lot of people who teach us or talk about financial literacy, they themselves are not too literate about it. There's two sides to literacy. One is you understand all the theories, you understand really how it works. And the other side is the one who lives it, right? There are a lot of people who live it. Yeah? But not many of them really understand the logic behind it. Mm. It's just a habit. It's like, for example, your mom has been telling you save 10%, therefore you save 10%. Ah, yeah, just right? go in FD. Yeah, and then yeah. You, you're pretty good at managing money, but do you understand the logic behind? Mm. Yeah. Do you know why you're buying stocks? Do you know how stocks works? Do you know how unit trusts work? Do you know how insurance works? All these technical details, right? Mm. So, and a lot of people who actually teach us they won't be able to look at a policy or look at investment product and tell you exactly what is inside. Because it's just more of a hunch and it's more of a habit that they build up. Mm -hmm. Then, 
it's not really financial literacy. Mm. It is just teaching you a habit. But yes, habit is part of a big part of it, right? So that's what I mean, right? That's why like a lot of people say teach financial literacy and so on in school and so on. But if the fella doesn't even understand what is a PE ratio, what is the ROI, what is the capital return investment, it's going to be hard, right? The person who teaches it needs to have both. It doesn't mean he needs to be perfect, doesn't mean that he needs to be a millionaire, but he needs to understand the logic and be able to communicate the logic. And fortunately, unfortunately, people who are good in this are usually salespeople. <laughs> and they're usually selling something to you. And because the commission is so lucrative, it doesn't make sense for them to move on to teaching. And so that's why when people move into teaching who are good in this, they end up becoming someone who will charge you $10,000 for a class because only then it's worth my time. So no one is willing to bring down the pricing and say, let's do something about it. Let's try to get it out for free and let me work on another model that pays me. Yeah. And so that's what we did here. We tried to provide things as affordable and as free as we can and we work another business model around it that, that we get paid for doing free stuff. Yeah, so that's how we play the game. And that's what made us unique. So the, the idea was that when you do so much of that, eventually you will be able to gather enough data and one day when we are ready, we can leap into technology. Did you think, but what gives me the right to be doing this? Am I the right person? Wouldn't there be someone else, better place, who has run a really successful, famous company who people will look and say, I trust you, you're a figure of authority. So, over the years, I came to realize that if you spend a lot of time wondering, am I really the right person? There's someone better than you. There's always someone better than you. Just read all the biography that you can read. If that is going to be the thing that stops you, you will never achieve anything in your life. Mm -hmm. So, don't bother thinking about it. That shouldn't be even a question. It's irrelevant. Yeah, so it's that practical. <laughs> Once you decide I'm going to go into full-time, what were the immediate steps you took? So, I remember at the moment I go into full-time, the first thing that I did is I sit down with my wife, we looked through our finances. Yeah. We drafted out a whole Excel sheet. Yeah. How much you earn, how much I earn, what are we going to do? And we project our finances, where we can cut down. Yeah. And we followed that, that, that particular Excel sheet as much as we can. We also set like, what are some rewards and milestones like, what we can get along the way. And if let's say we hit this, what are we going to do? You know, like for example, one of the things that we said, I still recall, if we can if we have 30,000 minimum in savings, we would go for a trip. But pandemic came, so <laughs> I'm not going for <laughs> a trip. Even more. Yeah. So now it's just uh, part of our emergency funds and everything all, right? Yeah. So, <clears throat> but that was the number one thing. And the number two thing is to communicate it very, very clearly with my, my wife that, Things are going to be really busy and I need your support. Yeah. Things are going to be really, really busy. I need both emotional support and also support of time, which means that you're going to help out to take on a lot more things in the family. You're going to bear with me and be a little bit more patient. But trust me, things will work out. And yes, when you say trust me, it's very scary because you also do not know the answer. <laughs> and you just have to have this crazy optimism to believe it. Yeah, so these are the first two things that I did. And number three is actually just taking action, work. I used to sit in the office. I still recall, right? Uh, the other day, I went to Common Ground to meet the guys from Endeavor, mm. right? Yeah, so I met them the other day. And it was such nostalgic to walk into Common Ground because I started our office there. I still recall we took a, a space, not a room, but just one of the desks, a fixed desk. And I would work there from 8 o'clock and by 7.30, CK will come from his work. We'll continue working until 2 o'clock. Wow. Sometimes 4 o'clock. Head home. Come back to the office at about 8, 9 o'clock. Work again. The day just repeats like that. It's just grind and grind and grind and grind and grind. What kept you going? Was there ever a point where you thought, maybe this should be an easier way? An Every easier day. <laughs> <laughs> Every day I ask myself that question. Yeah. I think literally our, our joke among ourselves partners is this. Man, if we just keep this operation a little bit smaller, 
all of us will be driving a Porsche, man. Yeah. Yeah, let's just drive a Porsche. You know, why, why not next month, let's just drive a Porsche. So that's our <laughs> joke. When you say drive a Porsche, it means that let's just cut down the numbers, just work on few things. Then we would drive a Porsche. But no, lah, that's not a plan. So Why not? <laughs> I think for me, starting this business is not all about money. Money is part of it. It's the reason being is because I always believe in helping people, but I don't believe in charity. I believe that you need to create a business that's social, but it shouldn't be a charity. What do I mean by that is that, you know how a lot of business model works, right? They go with like asking for donations and stuff like that and raising money to actually help people. It's a flawed model in my own opinion. That's why you have social enterprises. Yes. So I, I believe in a sustainable one. In fact, I believe in a for-profit social enterprise. Yeah. I don't believe in non-profit social enterprise, right? Mm-hmm. I just think that there needs to be a for-profit enterprise that is willing to distribute wealth more equally. Yeah, because you will see a lot of for-profit enterprise, end of the day, is just paying their people a little bit better than what the market is paying or like the groups that are not doing very well but just pay them a little bit more, mm-hmm. right? And that a little bit more is still not even not even our kind of urban pay, lah, put it this way. Huh? And I, I disagree with that kind of method. I, I believe that ultimately it's about co-sharing of wealth. I don't need to be the richest person in the room. I just need to be getting a fair reward. That's what I believe. So I always tell people this, I'm not nice, I'm just fair. Yeah, I'm just fair. Yeah. So I don't need to maximize my wealth. We just need to distribute it equally and everyone is happy. Yeah. So because of that concept, I always believe that if you're social enter- if you see yourself as a sustainable social enterprise, the first place to work on is to create a great working environment. And that means paying them well. Mm-hmm. And so if I don't do that, then I'd rather not hire. Mm. That's my belief. So I want to talk about the whole hiring employee part later. Firstly, I want to drill down more on you really wanting to give back to people. And I wonder where that comes from because I feel like people haven't exactly given to you that much, right? I heard there was the story of this girl who you saved her life in oh. a train. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit more? Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think over the years, I've become more skeptical about human beings. (laughs) Uh, So I I think if you watch one of my videos about brutal truths about business, I said this one thing, right? The key is about staying sincere in a very insincere world. Mm. Because of the virtue of seeing what my dad has gone through, then I myself joining the insurance industry and then losing friends along the way and seeing things like that. I'm sure people were laughing at you. When yeah, you- yeah, they were, they were. Even when I started Mr. Money TV, mm-hmm. I was laughed out the door. And I still recall, I was just telling people, when I first started Mr. Money TV, I went to many VC events and everything. I used to tell people about my idea of how things could work here. They used to tell me that I don't think it's going to work out, dude. See you, take care. Yeah. Uh-uh. And at that time, media wasn't the thing yet. So I just tell them that it's going to work. It's going to work. And I got laughed out the door. People would be like, nah, you know, stuff like that. And today I walk into those events, people will be like, hey, Peter, Mr. Money TV. You know? <laughs> yeah. So I get very skeptical about human beings. Yeah. But you still want to give back. Yeah, so talking about a train incident, mm-hmm. I will forever remember that. Yeah, <laughs> not that is that person's fault again. So what happened was that one day I was in the train station in monorail. This lady, she, she was like standing there and she looked very odd, right? And I hopped into the monorail and she didn't come in when everyone else came in. She just stood very near the door and she just suddenly almost like two times just like leaned towards the door from the outside and the monorail was about to move very so I just quickly hop out the monorail hold her before she fell on the track fell on the door and just ran down the tracks right and apparently she didn't eat breakfast so she literally if I don't pull her back I think she would either be heavily injured because like at the moment the door was about close the thing runs she's just gonna lean herself on that moving MRT train and it's not the ones with gate kind, yeah. right? So, I took care of her, gave her my food, my breakfast for the day, I just gave it to her <laughs> and I got a number. She said, yeah. oh, thank you very much, you know, one day let me just thank you, okay? Buy you a coffee, you know, something like that. I was like, yeah, sure, sure, no problem, right? Then, I just joined the insurance industry at that point. 
So I gave a call subsequently when I joined about three weeks later. I said, hey, do you remember me? She said, yeah. She hasn't met me yet, even after that day. Then I gave her a call. I said like, hey, I understand that this is a bit odd, but since you want to meet me up for coffee, you mentioned that. Can I meet you for coffee? But at the same time, I actually just joined the insurance industry. Do you think it's possible that I can just give you a sharing? You don't have to buy anything from me. I just need to practice. Nope. <laughs> and that's all, right? I've never heard from her again, never see her again. Yeah. I mean, I only said that once. And I mean, when you help someone, you don't expect to be helped back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But definitely it didn't felt very good. Yeah. And it made me realize also that actually, when you help someone, you don't expect anyone will help you back. Just don't expect that. Mm. And people live for themselves. It's just like that. Then now, you have a choice. If next time when someone is going to fall onto a tracks, should you go and help the person or not? Don't say that you want to listen to me, my sales speech or not at the point, right? But just say that you never even called me before to thank me, lah, put it this way, right? Should I step out and help that person yeah. next time? My answer is still yes, because it is not for that person's benefit, but for mine. Because whenever I step out and help someone, it makes me a better person. That has nothing to do with them thanking me or not. That has nothing to do with helping them. It is about me being a better person. So that is always my philosophy. And that's why in doing this whole Mr. Money thing, the expectation is not that my audience will thank me for doing something. My own benchmark is I become a better person. That's all. So they don't have to walk down the street and say, thank you very much, Mr. Money, for willing to change the thing and do it like that. Or It's okay. In fact, I thank them because you're willing to let me experiment being a better person. And that perspective helped me to stay more sincere in the insincere world where even if people take advantage of you or anything, you just go... Well, it's never about that. It's about yourself. And that was the end of episode 122. The show notes and transcript can be found at sothismywide.com forward slash 122. Now, as mentioned earlier, this is only part one. Part two delves even deeper into what it takes to run and build a seven-figure business. We talk further in depth as well about his visions and dreams for the future, including this thing called the Hershey. City. And also, if you haven't done so already, please do subscribe to the weekly steamy newsletters. This is where I essentially bring you even deeper into my world. Because let's face it, this episode comes out once a week. There's only so much you can learn. But in this newsletter, I take you behind the scenes. You'll learn about the things that didn't make the cut. What it's like for me, having since left law, to essentially forge my own path. The kind of people I'm meeting, the lessons I'm learning. There's so much that's happening. Every week is truly varied and unexpected and i hope that you'll be interested too and you'd like to learn more so if you're intrigued do head over to the show notes at sodasmile.com forward slash 122 and you find the subscription link to the newsletter and see you next sunday